Uncomfortable is a series in the Mississippi Book Festival podcast, Right on Mississippi, which is presented in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Today, I am joined by Mississippi Book Festival board member and Tougaloo professor, Ebony Lumumba, to talk about race relations, the current state of affairs, and how we proactively contribute to the change for good. Ebony, thanks for joining me today. For having me, Holly. It's good to talk to you always. Our roles are a little reversed. You have been the host of our podcast for some time, and we are very grateful for your commitment to the Mississippi Book Festival. Our goal for the festival, of course, is to connect readers with books, for them to meet their authors, and for everyone to develop relationships and learn a little bit more. And in canceling this year's book festival because of the pandemic, and considering virtual platforms, and then being faced with the racial pandemic that has hit us, the whole world, frankly. You and I have talked about the importance of family, of mothers, of communication. And so one of the things that I want to talk about today is that in our conversations, we've talked about the dismantling of systemic racism. And in plain people talk, that is the end of white supremacy. Correct. Right? Right. Um, So I would like for you to talk about how are some ways that you see an end to the, to that system and how we particularly as mothers, as community leaders, as volunteers, um, as a white woman, as a black woman, how, how we can start to work together. It's not a black problem that white people need to empathize with. It is a white problem that we need to address. Um, And I I believe that. So, uh, and I've also been very sensitive to the burden of white people saying to their black friends, what do we do? Yeah. Yeah. We need to, we need some guidance, but I mean, I think ultimately if we spend some time reading and thinking, the answers become very self-evident. Yeah. They're apparent. They're apparent. So I'm going to let you take it from here and talk about what you've seen, what's important to you, and how we can, what we can read, what we can share with our children, what we can share in the community um, to affect some change. Thanks, Holly. I think you touched on so many of the points that are critical for us to engage in a conversation about dismantling systemic racism, which again, it's just ousting white supremacy. So the first steps to that, in my mind, are very practical. It's one, this sort of acknowledgement of the power that we all have to dismantle this system. When we use that rhetoric that can seem esoteric, it can seem hyper-political, then some folks feel that they don't have a role in it, that this is what the activists or the politicians need to do, and we're just going to wait around to see how they handle that. But if we acknowledge it as sort of this banishing of this, this disease, this force in our society that relegates an entire demographic or population of people to the margins, to the outskirts, to second and third class, then we can start to acknowledge all of the practical implications and manifestations of white supremacy. So one, we've got to acknowledge the power that we all possess to dismantle this thing. And that includes white people. And that that power to do, to get rid or to oust this system doesn't mean that you necessarily have to show up at a march. It doesn't mean that you have to post things on your social media. These, these actions that you can take are as simple as conversations with family. 
mm-hmm. over dinner, Thanksgiving. I can't tell you how many, uh, my white friends, we came back from Thanksgiving break as an educator. That's one of the breaks that you get in the fall. And many of them started to talk about uh, the rough conversations or just how tense it was at family dinner because they had these diff- these different ideologies about equality and equity and race. And it was something that was so foreign to me because me and my immediate family, my parents and uncles and aunts, we all feel the same way about systemic racism and oppression. We all have experienced it in a number of ways. And so there's no tension there about uncle so-and-so or Aunt Anne not believing that certain people are worthy of certain human rights. And so that was eye-opening for me because I thought, man, that is this opportunity that you have to address this horrific system and all of its tributaries at the most basic level. Sure. And, well, and conversely, or not talk about it, that everybody just looks the other way. Yeah, and just like pass the and right. let's, let's just blow off the fact that there was a racist joke told or there was a comment exactly. made about a leader of color that flashed across the television screen. Um, those are not experiences that I have. But if that is someone's experience, then that's the opportunity that you have to sort of begin this ripple effect of dismantling this system. Um, You mentioned our identity as mothers, which I think is an intersection for the population of people who call themselves mothers, right? Who are nurturing children um, from a maternal standpoint. And we have this uh, opportunity and space to influence our children that we oftentimes don't take advantage of for a number of issues. I saw a wonderful post uh, yesterday, and I don't know who to attribute it to, so thank God I'm not directly quoting it, but <laughs> the sentiment was that, you know, my children don't read my social media, they watch my actions. Sure. And so right now we have so many people sort of uh, flooding timelines with their in, in solidarity and Uh, very well-meaning posts that have information and education. And it's good to know that you have friends that uh, support the same causes that you support and that are just and and should be supported, but your children don't see your timeline. Well, and what you do on social media, as we've all said for a few years now, it looks real pretty on social media. My life is shiny and glossy and perfect. In real life, it has to translate to, I mean what I say. Yeah, this is how I live. Sure. So um, that post to me was just kind of the the nexus of this idea that we influence our children a great deal and that you're not born prejudiced. You're not born racist. You're not born uh, with these negative characteristics of humanity. And they're, they're very much learned, not only from uh, you know, in your home or from your parents, you learn them from all of these social situations. But as mothers, because mothers are becoming the center point of all of these lives that have been lost. The fact that George Floyd called for his mother. Sure. Right? People were immediately identifying with that. And that really underscored his humanity for a lot of people. It's wild to think, but the fact that he is calling, we all have a relationship with someone that is maternal to us. Sure. And so I think we can harness that impact that we have on the small community that is our children and who we uh, expose our children to and what we expose our children to. Uh, that's one of the many ways that we can you know, dismantle systemic uh, racism, this big lofty thing, 
it can be chipped away at and it should be chipped away at at the earliest stages of life so that it doesn't become a like a second skin and what makes it so difficult to dismantle why you have to rip this thing to shreds is that it is second nature for a lot of folks to think racist thoughts to act in racist ways to have these sort of prejudices that are steeped in uh these racial stereotypes generations so i'm as a white mom um i have always told my children that we don't use racial slurs and if you if so and this is not right but so long as you don't put yourself in physical danger you should stop whatever you you perceive to be bad going on around you whether that's a racist comment you can ask the person to stop talking or don't use that or you see someone in a perilous situation black white male female it doesn't matter you should always help people um and you know my children made it through almost made it through high school and i did not take into account that even though i said it to them and we had great dinner conversations and table conversations and and I, and I feel like we've modeled good behavior one step removed from me in a in their friend circle or their school circle is a powerful influence over their uh, what shapes their personalities and their decisions and has an effect on them. And while I still feel like my modeling and my conversations outweighed what they learned or what they absorbed beyond me, I'm very alarmed about how just one tear right outside my front door, um, they had the opportunity to witness racism, um, even in the subtlest of ways, and probably didn't stop it, probably didn't think about saying, hey man, don't say that. Let's not act like that. It's what's key to me and what you're saying is that like they didn't think to do it. And I think there are a, a number of white parents who have done what you, you've done. If you hear this, this is bad, we don't use this, we don't tolerate it. I think there are limitations there because then that situates these um, instances that they're going to have with race as uh, you are a defender, right? That you've got to protect this class or this group of people and that these situations are going to be few and far between. So they are not guided to consider race all the time, right? And in a way that is not necessarily negative. So what I mean by that is there's a, a one of the things I did post on my social media was that you know you should be reading books that affirm black identities to your children, no matter what your children's identities are. Exactly. Right. And so when you start to do that, then they become accustomed to the fact that you know race exists as a social construct, but it becomes a part of their everyday life and conversation right. in a way that is positive. And so they don't they don't feel disarmed when they encounter an instance of some sort of racial interaction, then it becomes second nature that, no, this is, why would you even see this person as different? I'm not defending them, but I'm defending this opportunity that I have to be a good person, right? Like, I think what is underrepresented is how racism affects white folks in negative ways, right? How it takes away your opportunity to empathize, to be thoughtful. It literally steals the souls of white communities. And so in not ensuring and being deliberate about incorporating multi-ethnic, multicultural experiences in your children's lives at the earliest ages, you take away this opportunity that they have to experience all of these different 
intersections of identities and people. And so you might be raising them, telling them that, you know, this is wrong. These words are wrong. We don't do this. But they're still at an all-white school. They're still in all-white playgroups. They're still, they're still very accustomed to valuing white lives. It's very apologetic. It's not action-oriented. It's not changing who they are. It is, well, we're sorry, um, but we're kind of okay to live this way, and um, we'll do our best to incorporate you into our world, not yeah. change their world. It's our world, right? Like, this our is world. going to happen every once in a while, and when it does, this is what you do. It's this conditional sort of circumstance that they're not ready for because it doesn't happen very often. They're not in the environment where it could happen. Right. So let's talk about how, I mean, there are so many books and articles and resources available. Um, And I don't want to be beholden to a book for this conversation because I think words are important. One of the things that you and I have talked about before we've recorded this was my hope that this podcasts will lead to other conversations. And um, just so our listeners know, um, Ebony has come up with a great title. She actually named right, right on Mississippi, the first podcast, but this podcast series of conversations is going to be called uncomfortable. And I think that's key because we do, we will be uncomfortable. Um, We are, this is an opportunity to really, I mean, the light has been shown in the crack and the crack is enormous, but what lies below the surface is still long and deep yeah. and, and, and powerful. Mm-hmm. So uh, to me, I'm a doer. I want to, I want to help people. I want to solve problems. I don't spend a lot of time looking back. Um, and I'm careful right now about my words that I'm using um, mm-hmm. because the book festival, for example, is not going to make a statement on what's going on. Right. We have, been diverse. We have talked about all kinds of issues and books and topics. And I feel like um, thanks to a committee of people, we've done a good job representing all kinds of people at the Mississippi Book Festival, Um, black, white, gay, straight, you name it. We talk about it. We don't like zombies. Um, (laughs) Except zombies. (laughs) We're not really into zombies. Um, So how, what can we read? What can we do? What, how can we talk among ourselves? And I am, I'm putting the burden on you. Um, but I'm putting the burden on you as a professor, as a wealthy scholar, as a member of the uh, Mississippi Book Festival, but as someone who's really thought through this, when I want to go to in my all-white book club, mm-hmm. when I want to go to my church meeting, which is predominantly my right. same race, yeah. um, when I want to have a conversation with my next-door neighbor, let's talk about words we use, statements we make, and books we can read or articles we can reference. So, you know, I'll start by saying there's been this sort of this meta argument about what black people should or shouldn't be doing. Right. Like, It's not my job to be your resource or your conscience in this the stuff is out there. Find it. You know, there's a there's a population of folks that are like the stuff is there. Find it for yourself. It's been there, um, which I completely understand. And I will inject at this point that we will share a compilation of everything we're talking about yeah, through our social media uh, when we release this podcast. So we are going to help people out um, and, and link yeah. in resources. You know, so, but, you know, my stance as an educator, this is something that I am fundamentally subscribed to this 
idea of, you know, not necessarily educating people because that can sound condescending, but exposing uh, folks to things that you may not have had access to for one reason or the other, because you didn't want to, or you you didn't know. And so I have no problem with making these suggestions because I would very much so like to live in a world that is more intellectually curious about the things that ail us, right? And I think that there's so much content available that we don't um, take advantage of that could really start to demonstrate to us where we go wrong, where we could go wrong, and some of the things that have been done that were good and helpful and progressive that we've gotten rid of. And so I have to reference, um, it's so hard to know where to start because one thing that I know, we're talking about, we talked about moms a little bit earlier, right? Like, uh, you know, moms are not about to sit down and read white fragility. You know, who has the time? And so some of these resources obviously need to be visual. Some of them, they're now condensed in podcasts and in the social media of these authors, for example, Ibram X. Kendi is an author um, who has a number of texts that are useful uh, that I'll mention in just a moment. But he's taking over Selena Gomez's social media right? Uh, today or tomorrow, which I think is a powerful right. moment. Yeah. Is it today? Right. Um, so it's a powerful moment because folks who won't read Stamp from the beginning, which is hundreds of pages of just historical fact about the uh, impetus and the root of racism in America specifically, the average person isn't going to sit down and read a book as thick as the dictionary, but he's going to condense that argument, right, in what he posts on that social media. So start to follow folks who do that sort of stuff. But I also saw online today where they are connecting black female voices on, they're taking over white women's Instagram accounts um, to do the same thing. So they they can reach a different platform um, and they can encourage people to follow um, them. I mean, I have found a number of resources that I follow where, and I have stamped and I have a couple of, and I have white fragility. Yeah. I'm a reader. Um, the difference is there, there is a myriad of resources, whether you need the 32nd, how to be an anti-racist clip, or you want to read the whole book out there in the internet is an, a, there. a lot of resources available to you. The resources are Available. So the books, this compilation of texts that we will submit uh, and make available to folks, there are also other avenues to access the content. Um, one of the, I think, most beautiful compilations has been this um, young adult version of Stamp from the Beginning by Jason Reynolds. Jason Reynolds. So, yeah, yeah Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Candy got together and did a remix. They're calling it a remix of this book that is more accessible to young adult uh, thinkers and readers. Uh, and I think that is tremendously powerful. And now he has, you know, anti-racist baby. So he has how to be an anti-racist, but then he also has anti-racist baby. And so we've got this one dynamic scholar who has hit all of these points of entry for uh, the demographics that need to be active in addressing uh, systemic racism. And then you've got writers like, or you've got editors who are bringing together the writing of many writers of all these different cross-sections and generations. I'm thinking specifically of Gloria Adam and uh, yeah, her well-read Black girl, which the title alone dispels this sort of racist stereotype 
of black women not being well-read or if you're well-read in black literature, then that is not considered to be well-read. And so she's got this compilation of authors across all of these intersections of black female identity in this one compilation. And she just writes the introduction, but that's a text I think that is not instructing you on how to approach racist situations or dismantle racism. No, but it's simply reading. Just, yeah, it's recalibrating. So in last year um, at the book festival, we did a panel for well-read black girl and um, Lori was here and no name came and, um, and no one will know this, but right before y'all went on, everybody met in the back. Um, It was just this huge hug fest and there were white authors there who were thrilled to meet Lori and uh, Nick Stone and um, Angie Thomas. And then Jasmine Ward, I think, didn't she come in? I mean, she was, I don't think that, I think that was the year before with Angie and Jasmine. And Jasmine. So, and I will say to our listeners that if you go to the Mississippi Book Festival website, you can find that well-read Black Girl panel and watch it uh, and and listen to the the content and the quality and the honesty um, and the energy and the the fun that these women have. Um, I mean, it was really, it was probably one of the best panels of the festival. Um, And I want to, you know, I just laud the festival and not any influence that I might've had, but you as executive director and your team and every and the board for being open to elevating voices that often don't get elevated, not only in publishing and writing and literature at large, but just in dominant culture in general. And so you have this panel of dynamic sort of juggernaut black female writers having a conversation about their process, about their, the origin of their careers and just about um, Nick Stone intersected, you know, her mothering experience with why she wrote Dear Martin. And these are not, and making it accessible and available to the demographic who attends the book festival, right? I think that's, that was a moment of dismantling the systemic racism that exists in publishing, that exists in dominant culture, that exists in how folks spend their Saturdays. Typically, yeah. you know, folks in the audience would not have spent an hour, an hour and a half of their Saturday listening to four black women talk about their writing process. Well, and Ann Patchett got there early and she walked in and she was, I mean, she was overwhelmed and she was like, I can't believe all of this talent is in this room. Uh, and she meant them, not her. Um, right, right. She was talking about them. She was talking about that panel and that group. And it really was touching. She wanted to meet them. She wanted their autographs. She wanted a picture with them. Yeah. She wanted to sit and visit with them and talk and learn. And, you know, it's just another opportunity to expose people and books and talents and connect people. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's get back to some um, resources. Do you want to talk about this morning you posted on Instagram, some great suggested reading for young children. Right. So uh, it occurred to me yesterday in the mail, uh, we got a package for our girls from my husband's aunt, who's just always sending goodies for the girls. And it was a box full of children's books. And she, and so of course, you know, literature professor, I'm excited, but I stopped for a moment and I thought how many children's libraries, black or white or any other uh, race don't have this many books that are black affirming. Mm -hmm. And not all the books are talking about how you treat Uh, other people or who black people are some of them are very much so based in history like books about Harriet Tubman and uh, James Baldwin uh, has a children's book that he wrote that was published and so some of them are just normalizing 
black people in all of these different realms, right? Uh, Ada Twist scientist that you've got this little girl who is just curious and intellectual. And so her, the book demonstrates her parents um, helping her harness that ability and then really being supportive of it. So these were books that were additions to my, my girls, my children's library, but we have so many more. And it is a deliberate choice on my, on uh, my part and my husband's part to ensure that when they go to their library, that they see faces like them so that they understand that, sure, you're not better than anybody, but you're certainly uh, just as good. And that, that people who look like you, people who you've come from have made an impact on this world that is far reaching, that is going to be probably farther than what you may experience in your history classes and your formal education. And so that it becomes normal for them to achieve. My sister is a physician and so, and she's got two girls. And so when my oldest niece was about four years old, the only thing she knew about doctors is that her mom was one. And so she took her to a meeting for some reason, and there were male doctors at the meeting. And she nudged my sister. She's like, mom, boys can be doctors too. It's this wonderful moment where she realized that this, it has been normalized that this black woman is a doctor and she had never seen all of these other types of doctors before. And so this opportunity we had to expose our children to uh, what is normal, what will become their normal. And what should be normal for them is uh, equity. What should be normal for them is that uh, folks are treated with uh, dignity and equality in every realm. And when they don't see that, we won't have to have those pep talks with them. When you see this, you should say this. They will automatically act on that because it will be, it will go against everything that they know. Uh, to be true and to be normal. And so that's my purpose and my goal in sharing all of these titles of Black children's books, children's books that are focused on Black characters. And some of them are just silly about bedtime. And some of them are much more um, in-depth about uh, establishing identity. Debbie Allen, a famous dancer, icon in Black community specifically, Uh, has Dancing in the Wings, where she addresses not only being a Black ballerina, but also having being tall for a girl and uh, having a different body type than most dancers desire to have. Uh, Little Man, Little Man is by James Baldwin. So imagine a children's book by this prolific writer and justice advocate. And then there are books that speak specifically to history that could be education pieces. So there's Little Leaders, um, which is the subtitle of that is Bold Women in Black History. And that's by Vashti Harrison. Adorable illustrations, but it literally is, um, it's a history book, a little history book that is palatable to children that teaches them about Rosa Parks or Mae Jemison and uh, Coretta Scott King. And it is given to them so that they get this history of Black women across all of these different fields. Marian Anderson is in the book. I mean, it's every sector. So it's arts, it's science, it is literature, it is activism. And so my daughter, my oldest daughter, I started to read to her excerpts uh, from Little Leaders. And you could see her eyes widening because she saw possibility for herself. But imagine also the impact of having that Little Leaders book on the shelf in uh, white children's libraries. It becomes normal to them. And imagine them in a classroom asking, okay, well, what about Bessie Coleman, right? We're learning about Amelia Earhart. What about Bessie Coleman? Because she's in my Little Leaders book that I've been reading since I was three years old. 
So this impact is small. I mean, it seems small, but it has dynamic effect or possibilities. Let me ask you this question, and I'm going to divert from our, our recommended books. And I want to talk about briefly um, something that, that, that it just occurred to me. Well, it hasn't occurred to me, but it occurred to me in this context. And that is textbooks are notoriously whitewashed. Every time a new iteration of a textbook comes out, there's something left out that was a critical piece of history. Is yeah. this an opportunity for us to go back and fix textbooks? I mean, and that is a monumental task. I lived in Texas when there, there was a whole debate over um, yeah. a history book and what they were going to leave out. But I do feel like we, this is an opportunity to go back and revise history fairly. Yeah, I think it's an opportunity, right? I think revising a te textbook still has this uh, implications of creating this sort of canon of acceptance because you've got to decide who makes it in and who, who's on the cutting room floor. I think it's an opportunity to revise our instructional practices period and to develop, uh, to help develop young minds that are intellectually curious. So you're exposing them and they're becoming more responsible for their education and more curious about what there is not time to cover, uh, right? In the eight to three or seven to two uh, classroom. And so, you know, as an educator, I rarely use anthologies and, uh, and textbooks or formulated textbooks. And I start to not only create my own sort of, sort of course packs, but encourage students to do that as well. So now we've had these discussions. I've exposed you to this. What have you found right out in the world that, uh, that is complementary to this that I've left out? What else did, is it that you want to know? And by the time we get to the end of the semester, what we've done is created a curriculum that is inclusive of more than I could have thought of. Yeah, it's exploded, which I think is what learning has to be. Once when we have these sort of textbooks, when we have these sort of um, just enclosed, this is all you need to know, and this is what you're going to be tested on, then I think it shapes the minds of young people to not expect to learn more, not to look for any more to know, or not to desire to know more. And I think one of the things that's going to benefit the anti-racist movement is the internet, that mm -hmm. even in the smallest communities and these smallest classrooms where people are not willing to teach history the way it really happened, the internet can be our friend. Um, and that these children who used to have no other option but to believe what they were taught mm -hmm. um, have a huge opportunity to f for, with online resources. Um, and I think in that regard, um, that we're at a huge um, advantage in this, in this series of addressing racism um, because the internet is, I mean, it's kid friendly now. I mean, there are so many um, kids authors who are going online and reading their books and doing Q and A's. Um, and there's a lot of opportunity for readers of all ages and to learn and to learn more and to learn differently. And, and, and as you said, it's not limited anymore. Yeah. If we take this pivot, uh, also considering uh, COVID-19 of having to be remote in all of these ways and have to, having to encourage distance learning, there is an opportunity there. I think to expand what our young people are exposed to. There's an opportunity to use these justice demonstrations in conjunction with what they learn about the foundation of the nation, what they learn about protests that have happened before and how they've happened and how they differ. And the language, the rhetoric of protest, I think is something that we can 
um, we can harness as a teaching opportunity for young people and how they just access and engage the world. There are opportunities here to encourage young people, but all of us in general, just to be better equipped to oppose oppression. So let's take a turn for just a second and talk about Mississippi writers in history um, and how they've talked about and addressed racism. Oh, gosh. So, so, you know, our Mississippi, Mississippi, one of our most precious resources has been our writers, our literature. And so, you know, typically when you talk about Mississippi literature, folks automatically go to William Faulkner. You know, there is this tension in the study of Faulkner's works as to whether or not there's some inherent racism or, you know, what his stance was as an individual, not just as a writer. If there is a piece that I find useful, and there certainly are um, more than this, but one of the pieces I find exciting accessible to young people and to folks who may not just want to really engage uh, the girth of a Faulkner text is his short story, Barn Burning. I think that's a text that is um, just a a few pages in comparison to uh, a novel that really demonstrates uh, systemic racism and all of its tributaries and even the possibility to dismantle it in practical ways, depending on your reader, your reader perspective. Eudora Welty was a little bit more forthcoming about being unsettled with the state of race in Mississippi and Jackson specifically when she was writing. And although she was very clear that she wasn't trying to crusade as some sort of political activist, she was unsettled by the state of, uh, of race in the state and in the city. And so she writes the story, Where Is the Voice Coming From?, which is based on the assassination of Megar Evers. And it's a fictional story that she wrote days after the assassination that has this eerie similarity to what really happened and what might have been going on in the mind of the assassin of Megar Evers. And so these were the some of the white writers who were writing from the mindset of the community that they had been nurtured and that they existed in, in ways that can speak to what systemic racism does, what it looks like, and how it's reared, it has reared its ugly head in our society. Of course, you've got Richard Wright, who wrote Uncle Tom's Children, right? One of his earlier texts that he wasn't the hugest fan of at the end of his life. But I think a story like Big Boy Leaves Home is so painfully relevant right now as we talk about the... Uh, abuse and the death and the murder of black male bodies by, you know, law enforcement or for the purposes of law and order. That's exactly what happens in Big Boy Leaves Home. And this is a text that's set in 1940s, 1930s Mississippi. I mean, this is the 75th anniversary of Black Black Boy. Mm -hmm. It it is a little unsettling how... It's terrifying. It's terrifying. And here's the thing, you know, when I talk about... uh, Big Boy Leaves Home, this text was published, you know, almost about a decade and a half before Emmett Till was murdered. But the murders, the fictional murder and big murders in Big Boy Leaves Home, the lynchings, so similar to Emmett Till that wouldn't, that wasn't going to happen for another, you know, 15 years or so. And now we fast forward several, several decades and we still see these uh, similarities in what has happened to George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey more uh, more similarly because it, he's killed by these civilians who feel like they have this vigilante right to defend property with lethal force. And so Mississippi writers were writing about it 
in the early 20th century, in the mid 20th century, and now we fast forward to writers like K.S.A. Lehman, Angie Thomas, Jessamyn Ward, Natasha Trethewey, who are still writing about these same themes. I mean, the hate you give is Big Boy Leaves Home. Right. In terms of the loss of the, these young Black male lives and what the community has to endure as a result of it. Mm-hmm. And the hate you give is what we're living right now. Right now. Uh, it is remarkable, thanks to the Twitters and Instagram and all that, these authors, these current authors, Kiese and Jasmine and Angie, Natasha, have a platform to talk about their work and sadly their inspiration yeah. and, and what fuels them. And it is remarkable how their works are award-winning, nationally, internationally recognized, sure. but they're underpaid. Yeah. They, they are underpublished. Yes. Um, they're underrepresented. Yeah. And, you know, when, when Jasmine was here two years ago, we recognized her that she was the national, she'd won the National Book Award twice. Twice. Black woman from Mississippi. And she had to fight her way um, with those books. Toni Morrison never did. So, which of course had its own racist implications as well as to why she never won a National Book Award. But yeah. In our own orbit, we we can touch these people who are writing on topics that are timely and important and expose what's really going on. And I think that's what our hope is here today. And the book festival is about is sharing these, these works so people can know the author, they can talk about the topics and that no topic is taboo. The topic is taboo. I think that every conversation is important. Uncomfortable conversations. Every uncomfortable conversation. It, are there other articles or anything you want to share about resources? Because then I think we should talk about what we're going to do in the future with this series. Yeah, so I definitely want to talk about where we're going in the future. Interestingly, Elle magazine put out a list of texts and they span the publication times, you know, span across time. So you've got The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, which, you know, is her first novel. And so this novel's decades old, but then you have something as present as Sing Unburied Sing and these other texts that draw in an experience of understanding systemic racism in varying ways. And so, you know, my recommendation to anyone who is interested now in just kind of grounding your understanding or expanding your understanding is to, to, to make it a sort of a hodgepodge or a potpourri, so to speak, of what you're engaging. Some of the political texts, these political texts are important, right? Wretched of the earth, Franz Fanon, these timeless political, historical text, but then also the fiction that really drives home that this experience is your experience and you should be able to find characters that you can relate to on the level of humanity that will, I think, sometimes that encourages us more than just deepening our political or historical understanding. It certainly opens our eyes, right? To know that when you can start identifying with characters in a book in any capacity, your eyes are open to, I'm not alone, and there are people out there just like me. And I understand that feeling, right? Because so many folks are trying to kind of grasp, you know, I'm sorry that the world is like this from white friends. And, you know, my response is, listen, it's damaging you in different ways, but you are being damaged as well. So what are we going to do about what this is doing to the soul of our humanity? Um, 
I don't want to forget to mention the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. It's, you know, it's not a new text, but I think it is eye opening to demonstrate just the systemic nature of racism and how it works uh, in all of these varying ways. So, but the, the fiction and the poetry, Gwendolyn Brooks, all of this is, it, it's important. So I wouldn't overdo it in one area over the other. There are certainly resources in almost every medium. I mean, whether you're fiction, nonfiction, poetry, whether you have to look oh, sure. at it online. And what that says is how pervasive the subject is in everything we do and everything we produce. And to ignore it, I mean, there's effort that must be taken to ignore it. And it's a generational effort, right? At this point, absolutely. Out, to box it out because it is present everywhere. You and I talked and shared our thoughts via text message and email. And what spurred this conversation was the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. And when I talked to several people about it, they said, you know, the men that murdered him weren't racist as much as they were haters. Uh, They were both. I mean, they were definitely racist. Uh, (laughs) uh, I think you have to be both. I mean, to murder someone at point blank range. Mm -hmm. Um, But we, we talked about, we shared our emotions on both sides. And we decided it was important to figure out how we can funnel your rage and my amazement and disdain into something functional and positive and tangible for people to to sort of start to have the uncomfortable conversations, whether again, it's with your next door neighbor, your church group, your book club, uh, your four black friends. I mean, I don't know. But that's what this is about. So mm-hmm. you're going to take back over moderating the podcast. My work here is about to be done, fortunately. Right. I know that we have talked to Jasmine Ward about doing a, a podcast coming up. Angie Thomas has agreed to do one. I think we have a special podcast with Kiese, who is going to be in conversation with a couple of friends. Yeah. Um, and then we talked to Tanja Murphy, who is our community outreach coordinator. And she had the brilliant idea to talk to students about what they're reading and hear from other kids to hear about different books. So one of the panels we have coming up will include Kiese Lamon in conversation with Celie McGinnis and Charlie Braxton. And we're going to keep asking people to be in conversation and we're going to keep having uncomfortable conversations. It's, there's no way we're going to solve this problem today. There's no way we're going to solve this problem with a podcast, but if you and I can talk about it, we we live a mile and a half from each other. Um, There are a lot of people in that mile and a half between me and you, and I'm happy to talk to anybody about this in any capacity. As you indicated, there are layers, layers and layers of this. And you know, it's overwhelming to think about where you start to really affect change. And again, I think you and I agree that it starts with the moms. Uh, yeah. It starts in... in yeah, we, tremendous opportunity. Tremendous opportunity that, you know, we, we, we must harness if we want to see a different world where our children are absolutely aware of the imperative of struggle, but not burdened with generations of racial injustice. That's not what I want for any of our children. No. We have our children. No. But to be keenly aware. Anything else you want to throw in there? Um, There's so much more to talk about. I just want to draw, I do want to throw in, right, as we talk about race and racism, you know, folks understand that we're not talking about feelings or emotions, but we're talking about a system that supports having certain feelings about uh, certain groups. And there are all of these political, economic, uh, social implications to this system of racism. So when folks call the McMichael family and uh, the other man who was involved in Ahmaud Aubrey's death, when they say that they're not racist, then that's them trying to make some sort of judgment on how those men felt. 
And what they felt didn't matter. The, the power that they had or uh, they were able to exercise to take this life in broad daylight with the expectation that they were justified, that they are actively participating in the system of racism. That is racism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, this is uncomfortable stuff to talk about, and I hope more folks become comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's necessary. It is necessary. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll hear you in the next podcast. Okay. Looking forward to it. Uncomfortable is a series in the Mississippi Book Festival podcast, Right on Mississippi, which is presented in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting. 